Recovery Elevator, episode 368. Thank God, you know, because I'm one of these pandemic sober people, you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Which is, you know, a fraternity I love to be a part of because it's amazing in itself. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's episode, we have Steven. He's 45 years old. He's from New Jersey and took his last drink in September of 2020. Great job, Steven. Listeners, our Ditching the Booze course, the what, the why, and the how, starts Tuesday, March 22nd. Times are Tuesday nights at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, followed by an informal parking lot discussion for Q&A. This course is all about connection. We meet together as a cohort once per week for 75 minutes. You're going to participate in smaller breakout room discussions and connect with others via the coursework, which is assigned after each course session. DTB, or Ditching the Booze, is our intro course to an alcohol-free life. If you're exploring a life without alcohol, this course is a must. We'll cover accountability, routine, how to deal with cravings, what cravings are, mindfulness, spirituality, and more. This course is for Cafe RE members only and is included with Cafe RE membership. Link is included in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. And use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee when signing up for Cafe RE. Okay, before we get any further, let's hear from a great sponsor, Soberlink. Did you know there are 15 million people in the U.S. with an alcohol use disorder? And yet, there is still stigma that surrounds addiction and recovery. We need to stop being ashamed and start sharing in our sobriety. That's why we're so excited to have a sponsor like Soberlink who shares in our beliefs. If you haven't heard of Soberlink Alcohol Monitoring System, it's the perfect accountability tool for those in recovery. It can help you rebuild trust and get back on track despite slip-ups or relapses. We've teamed up with Soberlink to provide you with Tips for Handling a Relapse, which is a guide that can be downloaded at www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery dash elevator. On that page, you'll also find a form to sign up for a $50 off promo code for you or a loved one who is ready to take the next step in the recovery journey. That's www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery dash elevator. All right, let's get started. I have a folder in my writing software titled Past Emails. Before coming up with this episode, I opened the folder and started reading. I came upon an email received a couple years ago that I wanted to comment upon then, but forgot. And that's okay, because today is the day we'll cover this email, which does such a great job of displaying the mindfuck of alcohol, which is its deceitful way of telling us we don't have a problem. Don't have a driver's license because you crashed your car while drunk? Alcohol can't be the problem. It was the goddamn curve in the road and the poor lighting on the highway. This is one of many examples I've heard and is actually a true story. Okay, so here is the email. And of course, the name and other details have been changed. Um, And side note, I love the opening line here. I can't make this up. Here goes. Dear Paul, I don't have a drinking problem. I never have more than two drinks in one sitting, but I hate the feeling. It gives me insomnia, it makes me anxious and depressed, and I know my life will be better without alcohol. Then, why can't I stop? Maybe it's because I don't have a drinking problem. 
Sometimes I wish I did have one because then it would make it easier to stop. Or one might argue that if I keep consuming something I hate, I probably do have a problem. Anyways, I have read everything on alcoholism, kids of alcoholics, as well as your book. I really want to quit for good as I believe alcohol is a dangerous drug whether you are a normal drinker, addict, alcoholic, or whatever. My biggest challenge is fear of standing out or not fitting in. Do you know anyone else who matches the description above? Or have you covered the issue of not drinking enough to have a problem, but hating it and being unable to stop drinking, even if it is very, very moderate? Every book, podcast, sober group I've come across are aimed at heavy drinkers. What about normal drinkers who don't want to drink? I'd appreciate some light on the above. Thank you, Paul, Michelle, England. Thank you, Michelle, for the email, and thank you for reading my book, Alcohol is Shit. Okay, Michelle, we can cover some ground fast here. So yes, Michelle, you probably do have a drinking problem, and let me frame it this way. A, normal drinkers don't listen to How to Quit Drinking podcasts. B, normal drinkers don't email sober podcast hosts asking for advice on how to quit drinking. C, Normal drinkers don't read everything on alcoholism. D. Normal drinkers stop drinking alcohol if they hate the feeling it gives them, such as insomnia and depression. E. Normal drinkers don't tell themselves that their life will be better without alcohol and then trudge on dealing with anxiety and depression and negative effects of drinking. We could go on F through Z, but I think we'll stop here. First off, I'm not dogging this person who sent me this email. I want to be clear about that. If you listen to last week's episode, I talk about in my late 20s when a therapist asked me if I thought alcohol was a problem in my life or if I had a drinking problem. Even though I probably blacked out 40% of the nights in my 20s and I had just walked away from a bar in Spain since I couldn't control my alcohol, I said, uh, no, alcohol is not a problem. And here's the scary part, I wasn't lying. I just couldn't see it at the time. Michelle is trying to place herself in a box or to match the image she has in her mind for what an alcoholic looks like, or what she thinks an alcoholic looks like. In this space, it's called terminal uniqueness. So studies show that only 5% of alcoholics fit this stereotype or stigma, and that would be a brown paper bag under a bridge, shopping cart full of possessions, 1995 Miami Dolphin starter jacket, you get the point. Michelle, if you're listening still, thank you for your email, and I'm curious to see where you're at now with alcohol. Let me know. The truth of it is, some people hit rock bottom in prison, and some people hit rock bottom when they say something stupid at book club. There are probably 700 to 800 million drinking problems on the planet, and they all look different. Listeners, do you all remember the show Intervention on A&E that premiered in 2005? I'm almost certain most of you guys do. I remember watching the show in my mid-20s when I clearly had a drinking problem. However, while watching, I would tell myself, I'm so glad I'm not like the guests on the show because I don't have a problem with alcohol. Even though sometimes I was watching the show on a Tuesday night while drinking alone. So this is a mini example of the mindfuck of alcohol. There I was, drinking by myself on a Tuesday night, watching the show Intervention, telling myself I didn't have a problem with alcohol. Why couldn't I see it? For starters, I hadn't walked into a major family intervention yet. And that's the key word. However, in the summer of 2014, I did wisen up and I performed what I call a reverse intervention. I burned the ships on my own accord before my friends and family could beat me to it. Thank you for whomever and whatever gave me the strength to do this in the summer of 2014. 
This was first done with my parents, then with my brother, and then with my fantasy football league later that summer. There's no coincidence that my AF date landed just a couple months after I set fire to that first ship. There was no going back. Okay, back to the show Intervention, which does an excellent job of showcasing the mindfuck of addiction, which is by far the most dangerous part of an addiction to any substance or behavior. The mindfuck of an addiction is this. It tells you that you don't have a problem. Call it a disease, call it a habit, call it a turtle, I don't really care. But I can't think of any other disease that convinces you that you don't have the issue. For example, skin cancer doesn't convince you to sunbathe at the equator without a shirt or suntan lotion. It just doesn't do it. Nor does osteoporosis nudge you to sign up for a vert ramp skateboarding class. It doesn't happen. So in the show Intervention, I remember watching the subjects repeatedly deny or fail to see they had a problem. And this led to several out loud, come on, moments, all with a drink in my own hand. The program then leads to the climatic point, or crescendo if you're taking the ukulele course, of the intervention at the end of the show. It was really quality programming because it was real. It was vulnerable as hell. It reached a depth of realness that's hard to find on television today. And here's a neat stat with the interventions. After 276 interventions on the show, 270 of them accepted treatment, with 151 remaining clean and sober today, which is about a 55% success rate. Holy shit. That is fantastic. And if those stats are true, it crushes the generally accepted success rates of the low teens. Sometimes it takes an army or dedicated and loving family to say, yo, here's what's actually happening. Here's an ultimatum. What do you choose? Now, this ultimatum usually consists of two options, treatment or adios. You got to leave the family. The family simply cannot take the emotional brunt of the addiction anymore. Remember, both parties are equally affected by an addiction, the problematic and normal drinker both, and both parties need their respective healing as well. So let me simplify this for many people. If you're listening to a sobriety podcast, you probably have a drinking problem. However, if the point of an addiction, and this is in my opinion, is for us to get to know ourselves, aka loving ourselves or falling in love with ourselves again, then having a drinking problem, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Now in biology, this is called endowment theory. And what that means is that everything exists for a purpose. There is nothing that has been created, a behavior, a person, a noun, a person, a place, or thing, whatever, that exists that doesn't perform some sort of beneficial task for the advancement of our species or for the advancement of ourselves as an individual. So yes, an addiction does serve a purpose. It's not a bad thing, so please don't label it as a bad thing. It's simply something that's happening to us, happening for us in our lives, which is trying to push us towards something, and that something is connection. Connection to who? Well, primarily, that has to be ourselves. And that will conclude today's intro. And before we hear from Odette and Stephen, let's hear from BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market. Mental health matters. And as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. 
BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You all know that I'm a big proponent of therapy, so I highly recommend you check it out. Simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash elevator. Thank you, Paul, for a great introduction. And Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Stephen to the show. Stephen, how are you today? How are you doing, Adette? I'm doing great. How are you feeling? Not bad. Not bad. Pretty confident. and. Um... Good where I stand, so to say. I'm really glad that we're chatting. I know that we scheduled this a few weeks back, so I'm glad that the day it's finally here. And let's get right to it. When was the last time you had a drink, Stephen? Uh, I tell you the truth, I can't even give you the exact date. I'll give you a proximity. Um, it was probably uh, June. I'm going to say 20. No, I'm sorry. My last meaningful drink was June, say 25th. Um, a year and a half ago, which brings us to what, 2020, um, right in the middle of pandemic. Uh, my last drink was somewhere um, September after. Um, really, I, I really don't hold to that date, a date, so to say. Um, but my last drink was basically meaningful drink was as uh, the day I went into um, a four day detox, um, which was kind of like a very obviously important day of my uh, journey. Um, the last physical drink was somewhere in September, uh, I would say maybe September 15th of that same year. So 2020, September 15th. So I'm just over a year, year and a half, I guess it is. I don't even count the, the time frame either. Um, that's not so much important to me. Um, but again. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad that you shared that. You know, there is this such highlighted importance on the exact day in this date counter and all of this stuff. And I, and I talk about this a lot outside and inside of the podcast. And I, I'm glad that you're working on what focuses and what works for you. So tell me, Stephen, how are you feeling now that it's been over a year? Oh, fabulous. I feel great. Very proud of myself. So much more confident, uh, capable. My, you know, my relationships are much more enriched. However, there's been a lot of, um, you know, ups and downs in the journey, obviously. I think we all experience it. Um, I'm no different. So, you know, as good as I feel, there's been a lot of, you know, moments that are that are tough, you know, bad moments too. Yeah, it's definitely a roller coaster and it's life. You know, we get to experience the full spectrum. So thank you so much for your honesty. And Stephen, before we get into just the heart of the interview, can you let us know just a little bit about yourself? where you're calling in from, what do you do, how old you are, do you have a family, what are your hobbies, just a little bit about Stephen. Uh, yeah, I'm 45, I'm from northern New Jersey, I was married, I'm in the process of a divorce right now, that's a big part of my uh, my story, um, father of two girls, 
I'm a coach, girl, dad through and through, you know, just I love being a father. I, I have my own small business in northern New Jersey. It's kind of in the marketing niche. Uh, it's also in the automotive industry. Allows me to be very flexible, um, you know, give a lot of time and uh, flexibility to my to my uh, kids. I love sports, anything outdoors, bike riding, uh, fitness, so, and so on and so forth. That's pretty much it. Family-wise, like I said, I, I, I'm going through a divorce. I have um, two sisters, and that's basically it. I lost mm-hmm. my uh, parents a while ago. So tight, a tight-knit family. You know, my girls are everything to me. My daughters, pretty much. Oh, they're really lucky to have you. I love that you call yourself a girl dad. Yeah, I have a girl too, and and they're awesome. So I'm I'm happy to hear that. And Stephen, let us know when did your relationship with alcohol begin? You know, when did you start drinking? How was the progression? When did you realize it was becoming a problem? Just tell us a little bit about your story. Okay. Um. Basically, so I'm 45 now. My relationship with alcohol is probably 20 to 25 years in the making, so to say. Um, I got to say, though, I can't note the alcohol. Alcohol is the problem. Alcohol is why I'm here, obviously. But before alcohol, it was marijuana. So, you know, when you, you the symptom, you know, it wasn't just always alcohol. It, it wound up, alcohol wound up becoming the uh, winning symptom, so to say, or the, the highlighted symptom. But first, they probably was a mixture of marijuana and alcohol, um, which was kind of the norm with um my uh, surroundings growing up. Probably the first time I drank that I can remember, I think I, the first time was probably 13 or 14. I think I snuck a, snuck a um, couple sips or, you know, maybe down half of my dad's 40 or something like that at a, at a party. But I wouldn't even really note that. After the fact that that didn't mean nothing in my life um, other than, you know, just that memory. I guess around 17 was probably when I first started notably, you know, dabbling a little bit in alcohol and or weed. Um, Alcohol was probably the more prevalent substance at that moment in time. Um, But it was it was a non-factor to me. So, you know, I hear a lot of the stories where people are like, you know, the first drink was love at first, you know, taste or what have you or that. Wow. Yeah, I didn't have none of that. I mean, I had my first drink and it was kind of like, okay, this is what everybody's doing, you know, and I handed it off, you know, like it was nothing. That being said, I guess at that time frame in my life, my dad passed away when I was 17. So right in the middle of my my senior year. Oh, and I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. It's life, you know, so it happens to all of us. I guess that's where I started to search. I mean, probably not even knowingly search to fill voids in my life. So I guess start 17, dabble a little bit with it, going into like my early 20s, off and on, you know, binge drinking on the weekends like most of us do, at, underage, you know smoking a little bit here and there uh, along the way. I guess I never really truly dealt with the trauma of my father passing. And I guess somewhere around 20, I started more so with the marijuana and then all along drinking on the weekend, you know, like the party type drinking. I'm a Jersey, Jersey boy, you know, sort of Jersey shore going out to the city. You know, we had a lot of fun doing what we did. And um, so I binge drink during the weekends and I started to smoke more so during the week. And um, I thought I was a genius, you know, because I thought I figured something out. I had my turnover button and marijuana and was pretty much the turnover button. Alcohol was the ramp up button. So I like to kind of play puppet master with my uh, with my lifestyle at the time and my emotions. But I guess where the first time I really realized alcohol becoming a problem was when I started to use it to shut down, like use it to kind of go to sleep. I couldn't sleep, you know. 
from the time my dad passed at 17 to as far as I can remember. I mean, this is the first phase of my life where I was really sleeping good is now. So, you know, the weed was my shut off switch first. And then when I started my family in my mid twenties, going into the later twenties where I settled down, weed wasn't legal. It wasn't acceptable. It wasn't accepted in our society the way alcohol was. And, you know, I turned to wine. So because wine's respectable, you know, it's acceptable. It's everywhere. So it became my easy go-to. Um, so that's really where the alcohol became the, the better option, so to say, for what I was trying to accomplish on a day-to-day life. And, you know, I mean, it's a long journey from there. It's a, long, it's a slow journey too. That was another thing. I rode the brakes like a champ. I mean, I was able to manage it at my speed for such a long time, which was a bittersweet skill set, so to say. You know, like I remember Paul always talks about how he went to zero to 60 real quick. You know, sometimes I almost wish I did that. I would have saved myself a lot of time and a lot of pain, but I was able to draw out that dysfunctionality, that bad habit for such a long time that it cost me a lot, time-wise, money-wise, you know, relationships-wise. So, I mean, I don't know if I did a good job of explaining my, yes, my relationship you know, with alcohol. I- You've hit on so many good points. I mean, the fact that your brain was able to see the stigma of substances and notice that, you know, if you kept smoking weed or doing pot, you know, it would be a little bit trickier in terms of just the acceptance of it and the behavior around society and all of that. And and our brain and our brains, of course, immediately go to the thing that we know that is going to work. You know, our addictive brains are super smart. So I think it was really interesting that that's kind of the reason why you made that transition into alcohol. It's just like such a tricky disease in a sense, you know, where no matter what, it's going to find a way to to make it through, to make it out. And I guess I'm just curious, you did do a great job. So thank you. And I hear you when you say that the progression was slow. And sometimes we wish the progression was just fast so we can deal with the problem and get it over with. But when was it that you started maybe internally questioning your use of alcohol? You know, it was helping you sleep. You were very high functioning. So were you at any point getting some thoughts or like inner concerns of your use or were you just in total denial? No, yeah. I mean, I could I could probably come up with a couple. Yeah. I mean, there was multiple times to be honest with you. Um, another little side note. So, I've, you know, both my parents are deceased. So my father was my first loss when I was 17 years old. And, you know, that started the the potential for me to, to turn to something other than dealing with my emotions. That being the case, I think that if that was my last hardship, that that probably would have been, I don't know, I still, probably still would have went down the same path. But that being said, so I get married in my late 20s, probably one of the better periods of my life in terms of the up and down roller coaster that life is. And then my mom dies when I'm I'm 30 years old. So we get married, buy a house. My mom's still around, get pregnant. My sister's pregnant with my nephew. And I'm about to have my first daughter. My mom passed away. So now at this point, I had already quit smoking. I quit smoking probably like a year prior to that when we first started trying to get pregnant. So in my late 20s, I quit smoking and I was still drinking. And when my mom passed, it was like, probably one of the hardest things I ever had to deal with. And I didn't, I didn't deal with it, you know, but I had a baby on the way. I new owner of a house, new marriage, and I had no option, but to trudge on like we all do, you know? And that was a tough son of a bitch. That's how I always looked at myself. Like you were going to be able to punch me in the face. And I was going to, you know, ask you if if you were done basically. And I was just going to keep moving. And I basically just doubled down on the drinking. Like that's when alcohol really got its claws on me. So 
I didn't really see anything wrong with it in that moment because I was doing what I needed to to move on. And to be honest with you, I think a lot of the people around me probably gave me a little bit of a pass if they even knew it was a, a problem at the time because I was hurting and they knew I was hurting. Mm-hmm. You know, they knew what that moment was to me. Um, so if I maybe you know, visually drank a little bit too much to someone in my inner circle. They probably just said, oh, you know, he's going through a rough time type of situation. Mm -hmm. So things escalated at that point. Now, it wasn't until I got two daughters, 13 right now and eight. When my, we were getting, trying to get pregnant with my second daughter. All right. So this is, you know, over eight years ago. It's probably like going on nine years from this moment right now. We were having trouble. And my wife was my drinking partner to, to bounce around a little bit here. So that brings a whole nother little, you know, twist to the story. But um, we were having trouble getting pregnant. Never once did we really, you know, question alcohol being an issue, even though I'm sure it was. That's when me and my wife started to dance with the moderation, you know, the games and the attempts and stuff like that. Luckily, we got pregnant. My wife obviously abstained in both our preg- her pregnancies um, from drinking. So she stopped. I continued on. Probably that second pregnancy my drinking probably should have been addressed then. That was my first window. And uh, to be honest with you, if I could give you a crystal clear moment of when I realized that something was wrong and had to be done was we get all the way through that pregnancy. My wife has a C-section. So we're, um, you know, we're at the hospital giving birth. And at this point, like I, I heard stories too, like I guess probably in the RE podcast of people were saying like they brought alcohol to the, to the hospital. I didn't do that. I mean, like that to me, that wasn't even an option to, to thank, thankfully, you know, but I remember I had at the time. So we got my, my oldest daughter, who's now was, she was, I think six, five, six. So eight and 13. What is that? Yeah. Five. So she's five. And my sister, my oldest sister was our, our main caregiver for her. She was willing to stay with my, my daughter at home while I was in a hospital. My wife who just had a C-section, we just had our, our second daughter. And in my mind, in my addicted mind, I made an excuse to have to go home to be with my oldest daughter because my brother-in-law is sick. He's, he's now, he's got Louis body syndrome and he's really sick now, but in the beginning he was just showing signs. They didn't know what it was. They would call him, um, uh, postpartum, not postpartum. I'm sorry. Um, bipolar uh, at that point they had had, um, I said he was bipolar and he would be a little erratic at times. So in my mind, I made that as an excuse for me to leave the hospital, leave my wife, my newborn baby and go home. All being, I knew when I, I wasn't going home to drink, but I sure as hell was going to drink when I got home. Mm-hmm. So that night, you know, everything was fine. Like I said, it was more of an excuse than anything else, but leave my wife, my baby in the hospital. I go home. My sister's there. My daughter's there. My daughter's pretty much going to bed at that point. My sister's okay. Everybody's fine. I go up to bed. I'm drinking up in my room and I start to journal. Now I journaled my whole life, except for a huge chunk in the middle of my marriage when I was actively problematically drinking you know one of those amazing practices that we have in our lives that get robbed of us when we start to partake in the wrong Mm. activities so i started to journal all while we were trying to get pregnant and then obviously that night and i just remember feeling myself like something's got to give this is not right you know i can't it's not sustainable i probably didn't want to admit to myself that i should never have left the hospital that night and there's just something internally that told me that I'm not going to be able to ride this without consequences, you know? So that started, forget about it. I mean, from from talking maybe like a five-year journey from there where, um, you know, my wife got home, healed up, um, breastfed for a good year, which then she 
struggled with that whole, you know, breastfeeding and pumping and dumping and all that nonsense because she started drinking again. And then, you know, as we got back to life and our my oldest one's getting older, my little one's getting older, and we just started drinking more and more and more. And um, it became more and more of a problem. We did the moderation dance for years. I mean, to the point where, you know, I would take off, you know, I knew at that point, I knew I wasn't going to be able to moderate when I drank. So my whole idea was I'm going to take days off. You know, that was my savior. That was my, my great plan. So we did that for another, you know, I guess four years until the wheels started really coming off for me, especially. I ain't going to say that for my, my partner at the time, but for me, but go ahead. Cause I know I'm going off here a little bit. So you no, you're, you you're, go. I know we talked about you going off track, but you're not at all. This is, this is really following along with just your journey. And you know, a few things that, that stood out for me, I feel like you've shared that you've always been high functioning and then also able to compartmentalize. It really reminds me of a lot of people with drinking and like even my eating behaviors were, you know, that at the hospital, no, there's no way I'm going to sneak in alcohol, you know, and some people do, of course, but you are just able to kind of like, quote unquote, control yourself enough to where you're protecting the drinking and protecting your, you know, your reputation and your performance. And then you're able to kind of find those windows of days where you kind of allow yourself to drink, which I think is just very strategic, you know, and I feel like, like you said, sometimes things not moving fast is tougher. And also what you're saying, you know, if, if it's still, you could still tell yourself, you know, well, I didn't drink at the hospital. I waited until I was home and, and my kid was asleep, you know, that's totally safe. And I, I, it could have been a disaster, but it wasn't like sometimes these stories just really help us justify even more instead of see things more clearly as if there was like just some sort of chaos. So I just I'm really grateful that you're sharing kind of like your thought process on it. And also seems like that night you had a huge aha moment with the journaling. And even though that was not your last drink, I think there's something to say about our awareness developing. And for some people, the awareness switch turns off the moment that they stop drinking. But for many others, including myself, like the awareness is there, but the behavior continues. But the awareness, it's like the seeds already planted and it's just growing and growing, even though you you still drink. So, I mean, that tends to be a hard time because you kind of know that you shouldn't be doing it, but you're already doing it. Do you feel like... Yeah you weren't enjoying drinking and you weren't enjoying not drinking. Like, do you feel like you were in this kind of limbo for some time? Well, no, no, not, I'm mean, not at that point. I mean, yeah, you're, you're, you're hundred percent right. The eternal struggle. Once you reach that point, it's, it's something that, you know, has to be noted spiritually, emotionally, you know, mentally, but no, I, we weren't, I wasn't there yet. Cause we weren't there yet. See, that's another thing with my story is the fact that I was married to my drinking partner, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we were married for 15 years. So this was no, you know, two, two years in and out type of deal. You know, it was, right. you know, multiple houses, two kids, you know, I mean, we were high school, not sweethearts, but you know, I met her in high school. We became friends. We stayed friends long enough that allowed that relationship. Cause you know, when you, I'm 17, she's 14 when we first became friends. And if we would engage in a relationship, then we never would have made it because too much has to happen, you know, in those age groups. So we didn't really become romantic until I was like 27 ish and she was say 24, 25. And both of us coming out of those strong periods of parting in our lives, both of us within different worlds, but, you know, 
we were both running around having a good time. And when we met each other, we were still having a good time. So when I want to talk about my, my married, my married drinking career that lasted 15 years, the length mm-hmm. of our marriage. And, you know, when people say like, you can't have the good without the bad with drinking, I mean, drinking was great. I mean, for the first five years, we had a bowl, you know, young married couple, no kids really, or, you know, kids on the way just started. It was fun, you know? And then the second five years, I, I almost want to try to describe it as like, um, I almost felt like it didn't exist mm. sometimes because we were just, you know, just trudging along with our heads down, not investing, not um, building, you know, not working together or growing together, mm-hmm. you know, just try, just being parents, just, you know, honestly, the way I could ex- describe my being a father and a husband and drinking in the end, I had just enough energy to be a good father and yes. a businessman. You know, I didn't have enough energy for my wife, unfortunately, you know, um, to invest in that relationship. And I think in some ways it was reciprocated. In other ways, it wasn't from her. You know, we both did a good job of different things in our relationship. It's really tricky. You know, it's really hard. Those early parenting years, like you said, having enough energy for being a good parent, being good to your spouse, being good to yourself, like that is just such a collective struggle. And, you know, we've mentioned a couple of times here on the show how having kids is wonderful, but also is one of the most triggering things if you struggle with alcohol or any type of addiction. You know, it is very triggering. There's, I feel like change and what being a parent means is such fertile ground for a level of uncertainty where we just want to tap out. I mean, even even to this day, I find myself wanting to tap out. I have two kids, a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and it's really hard. So I totally hear what you're saying. And then, you know, especially if you if she was on the same page and you guys were drinking buddies, it, it's trickier to see things clearly. Yeah. And there's also like a bigger sense of like loss, as you said, you know, there's kids, there's this best friend of yours. And it is really hard to kind of separate yourself from that role within a relationship. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, and that was that was a big part of our 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 demise, so to say, because, you know, I mean, it, it was I mean, we lost ourselves. We lost ourselves as a married couple. You know, we just managed to stay. We were good parents. We, we still are good parents, you know, and um, even with the dysfunctionality within the household, you know, our kids were loved. You know, there was a lot of love in our household. And um, in terms of the question, I guess you originated was is like there was no really internal struggle at that beginning time when my second was born. Then became the moderating um, phase for the both of us, me and my me and my wife at the time um, where. I mean, I went on for years I, and we did good for, I would say, probably a good two years. You know, I, one note I want to say in terms of my relationship and, and our drinking is I drove the ship, you know, and that's one of the things I will forever hold myself accountable to is the fact that like I was the one that would bring the wine home all the time. I was the worst drinker, you know what I'm saying? We both problematically drank, um, but I pushed it, you know? I had that second gear that problem drinkers and alcoholics talk about, the one where you're drinking, you know, in those, if there is such a thing, those, those poor habits, those wrong habits where you're drinking to numb or you're, or you're yeah. drinking to get drunk or, you know, you're going faster than everybody else around you. Fortunately, I didn't have to hide because there was nobody to hide it from. Right. You know what I'm saying? We were right. doing the same thing, which is compounds on that problem because it's more acceptable. Mm-hmm. You know, like if, if my wife would have been looking at me like, 
dude, what are you doing? Our relationship never would have made it 15 years. You know what I'm saying? And vice versa. If I was looking at her and doing the same thing to her, you know, we never would have made it as long as we did. You know, the only reason we did is because we kind of built this program together. Unfortunately, in my perspective, it was a losing program. Yeah, um, you know, and th that level of accountability or of just normalcy within dynamics also keeps us in the game for longer. So I I understand what you're saying. And I'm curious as to what kind of started shifting the direction that you were going. You said you were the driver of this situation. You know, you were on the driver's seat. When did you start realizing so that moderation wasn't working and that something more drastic needed to happen? What what happened? What led you there? So like in, in true form to the rest of my journey, it took a, it took a while for that to even uh, play out. But basically, you know, we went on this, you know, multiple year moderating that, you know, wasn't really getting the job done. My wife was always a good job of putting the best foot forward. She was always like, we went on, we wound up going on what was our, pretty much our last family vacation two years prior to the pandemic, um, which was two years prior to selling our first house and buying our, se our second. We went on a cruise and, you know, we know what drinkers do on cruises. You know, we drink our faces off basically. So we were moderating right up to the cruise, went on a cruise, had a good old time. You know, even on that cruise, I was showing behavior of just like the wheels falling off. Like I was going hard to where like my, my wife's going back to the room with the kids and I'm running out to the casino on the last night just to, you know, gamble a little bit and drink a little bit more. You know, nothing bad happened. My wife didn't even question it so much because it wasn't like I was coming. I wasn't not coming home that night. I was coming home, you know, and everything was uh, you know, acceptable, so to say. But when we got back from that cruise, I think I gave up with the moderating, you know, so this is two years prior to the pandemic. Okay. Now, when we get back, we're, you know, things are still pretty good. My girls are happy. You know, we're doing as best as we are used to, because there was always, when you drink regularly, there's always going to be negative effects, whether, you know, you don't handle problematic situations is good. You know, just the everyday stuff, uh, you know, jumping at your kids, uh, getting a little bit more agitated at things, yeah. you know, those minor things, you know, we just got used to that type of lifestyle because that's where we lived. But we had the good fortune of to sell our house. We had some equity and go buy another one. And I think at this point was, this was my wife's kind of like a last straw. She wasn't verbalizing that to me, but she wanted, you know, this happiness that, you know, I don't know if it was attainable or not under our, our uh, present circumstances, but we were going to buy another house. All right. So we sold our old house, buying another house. Honestly, it worked out perfectly, but the stress, cause there was a lot of stuff that had to fall into place for it all to work out. The only reason I'm even mentioning is cause it's a, it's kind of like a kicker to me. So it all works out. We wound up buying a new house the summer, right before the pandemic. Now the stress between I was coaching business, the house, I, all that kind of fell on me, the house stuff. And the stress was getting to me physically. Okay. So now we're drinking more than ever through this whole process, which, you know, now that's compounding everything. So we get into the house and my, my health starts, starts slipping a little bit. So like I, I always kind of suffer from high blood pressure, which was alcohol induced. I never wanted to admit it, but it was, I um, had a bad back from playing football when I was younger, stuff like that. That was always in the background. And I used to use that as an excuse to drink more, you know, my back hurts, have a couple glasses of wine, you know, eases the pain, all that bullshit that we, that we live by and everything kind of came crashing down on me. So now I'm getting dizzy and disoriented. I have high blood pressure. I'm struggling to get through my work days. I had to stop coaching 
And we just got into this dream house that we're supposed to send our kids off to college in and basically, you know, retire. And we're not trying to moderate it at all at this point. You know, it's just a free for all. But things still look pretty good on the outside, I would imagine, for to most people. Then the pandemic hit, basically. All within a week, I didn't know if I was going to be out of business because the automotive industry shut down for a short period of time. My wife uh, at the time was possibly going to lose her job. So now, you know, two drinkers stuck in a house with two kids, school shut down. And, you know, basically the shit at the fan, you know, so thank God, you know, because I'm one of these pandemic sober people, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Which is, you know, a fraternity I love to be a part of because it's amazing in itself, you know, that this wonderful thing came out of this trying, trying time. But that's really where I just like, I didn't have my routine because the routine is what got shooken up in the buy and sell of the house. Because I could have stayed in that drinking routine that get my work done, get my daddy duties done. I was always accountable to my marriage, never ran around. None of that. So it, the living in that habitual cycle was easy for me. You could it have kept going. Many. Yeah, you could yeah, have for, totally for years, going. for years longer, for years longer, if it didn't get shooken up, you know, and the house was the first shake. That's what shook it up the house. And then the pandemic was that second shake. Hmm. And I found myself probably, what is it? Uh, April, May after the shutdown where I'm like laying in bed till 10, 11 o'clock, which I never did. You know, I was a very structured person and I'm like, you know, drinking and I now mind you, I guess I should rewind a little bit. So Paul, I credit Paul and the RE podcast is to getting me to the next level of sobriety, actually getting me to the doorstep of sobriety hmm. before Paul and RE, I started with, I can I drop names of other people? Is that, is that acceptable? Yes, that's totally acceptable resources. Okay. So, you know, I did the Andy Grace thing. I think my first taste with quit lit was William Porter and I didn't, I'll go explain I didn't really take to it. I don't know if I wasn't ready to hear it. You know, I went through it and it was kind of like, you know, a different language to me mm-hmm. to some extent. Um, but I did buy into Craig Beck. I don't know if you have any familiarity with Craig Beck. I've never heard of it. Explain it to me. He wrote a book, bo- he wrote a book on um, the stop drinking expert and he has a course quit drinking. I think it was. So it's a 10 day app. You know, you pay a couple hundred dollars. It's a 10 day um, intensive course where he basically it's, you know, you obviously, you know, being in a quit lit when you get in there, it's all a bunch of the same narratives yes. presented in different formats with different little twists and turns, you know, that make them more powerful to any individual. So to say okay. he was the first person that I guess when I was ready to hear the message, it kind of stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to this, this, this course with him, you know, 10 day course. And every day we talk about like, you know, alcohol in our society and, you know, the, all the bullshit, you know, the fact that you think it's your best friend and it helps you sleep and it helps you relieve stress and it's all a lie and you know, so on and so forth. All the stuff that we live by, you know, as people in recovery, so to say. So that was my, the beginning of it for me, the Craig Beck um, platform, so to say. And, uh, you know, that helped my cognitive battle that was going on. You know, the fact that I had so much worth for alcohol, but it was really doing the complete opposite in my life. So that got me to the doorstep of where I wasn't really getting anywhere with it. You know, I was relearning, you know, rewiring work was getting done, but I wasn't taking that leap. And really what I needed is I needed that detox and that, that the pandemic brought me to my knees, sort of say, where, or my wife at the time sat down and said, listen, you got to do something. And, you know, she was right. I did. And that's where the detox came in. I went to a four day detox, which they wanted me to be in there for obviously a 30 day program. Um, but with my business and my girls, you know, I, I made every excuse that you would have 
if you were to be successful, you know, fortunately for myself, I was able to be successful. I guess I did enough work prior to that detox that by the time I got that poison out of me and I was able to reset that, um, you know, good things were waiting to happen, Mm -hmm. so to say. And was this like a medical detox or like a rehab center where you could just go for four days? How how was that process? it was a it was a rehab center, medical detox. Now this has nothing to do with the Craig Beck gentleman. Craig Beck is nothing more different than say um, any Grace's thirty day um, thing, or you know all these other yes. programs that are out there. That's yeah. what I did prior. So that was my first taste of quit lit and really trying to just rewire myself. Because before that, I was kind of like your white knuckling type of deal, just saying, yes. okay, something needs to change, but I don't know how it's going to change. You know, like that's what up until that point. Then he, you know, he leads you through that process, kind of like Paul does. How are you? you know, kind of educate you and gives you the pillars like community and, and surrender and all that type of stuff. He just does it in a different format. Yes. And it was the first, first thing that spoke to me. And then I started to go out to the Annie Grace's and I think I stumbled across Paul's book first, alcohol shit. And Paul spoke to me because, you know, Paul played football in college for a little bit. Paul was from, you know, the States, United States and stuff like that. So I kind of um, connected with him a little bit more in his message. And then I got my hands on the, on the podcast and I love the podcast. I mean, that just brought that sense of community to me because prior to that, I'm riding around in my car by myself doing these audios all by myself, Yes, trying to figure, trying to think my way out of it. Like Paul says, which you can't, we all know that you can't, you know, you have to go beyond that thinking and thinking will get you, get you so far, but you know, you, you need to act beyond there and you need community, you need help. You need. So, and then Paul would say things like, I'd hear the surrender part, you know, that was huge to me, you know, the focus on the, the why, not the how, right. I mean, I'm, these, these were things that when I heard them, like, you know, even the first time I heard it's alcohol is not the problem. It's a symptom. You know, I was like, you gotta be shitting me. Type that is deal. so like, powerful. Yeah. When it, when yeah, those things you know? just hit you and they become these aha moments. And like you said, maybe it's just that you were also ready to, hear things a little bit different, you know, and see things a little bit different. And, you know, what happened after the the detox, after those four days, what happened to that momentum? Where did you go from there? Yeah, so yeah, definitely. You're right. I didn't need to hear um, something different from different sources at different periods in the journey, too. You know what I'm saying? Um, but so I hit the detox and, you know, I was a rock star at detox because I knew things that people shouldn't have known going through the first time. Like I had, I had some of these people and mind you too, detox in a pandemic is completely different than I think what normal people would, ex- would um, experience. So I spent my first two days in detox in quarantine, which was completely worthless to me other than the fact that they were monitoring my, my health, because that was a big, that was a big excuse for me to take that next step forever because my blood pressure was always through the roof. And to a logical person, you know, stop drinking alcohol, maybe your blood pressure will kind of, you know, settle down. But, you know, when you're in the depths of addiction, you know, you want to just keep it the way it is, you know, because you're surviving and, you know, you know, it's, a, it's like the fear of, you know, uh, withdrawal, you know what I'm saying? Like, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to have a, a seizure, this, that? So, you know, I made those excuses for such a long time. So the four day detox was really just the ability for me to go there, get healthy, get my head straight get my feet underneath me and move forward from there. So it goes great. But like I said, first two days are pretty much a wash. And by the time I get out day three and day four, I'm ready to go. I want AA meetings. I want intensive, like, you know, stuff like that. And I really didn't get much of anything. We had a small meeting here, a small meeting there. Um, at the end of the day, I wouldn't say anything bad about the, the rehabilitation center because it did its job for me, you know, but 
I didn't gain anything in that environment other than that supervision that I would have gotten from what I've been already doing. You know, so I came there with a good sense of knowledge and a good sense of where I wanted to go with it. At that point now, the tricky part came when I went back home because when I was there, I remember like I was getting checked out and, you know, they do everything to keep you there. So they were like, you know, you got to, you shouldn't be leaving right now. And I'm like, listen, I got to get back to my business because I'm a one man show. So I have my own business. I have five clients that make up my business and I service them on a daily, if not every other day basis. If I don't show my face for a week, it could all blow up on me. And so I couldn't just leave that. I had nobody to man the job. I made excuses for my daughters. I didn't want them to see me gone. I told them I went to just get a, like a reboot health wise. They didn't really know why I was going at that moment. You know, my wife at the time was very needy to me being around. She was used to me being around and, you know, she suffered from anxiety and, you know, just not having me in the house is, you know, was a problem. So I just wanted to get back to my world. So when I'm checking out, there's like, you can't, you know, you shouldn't be leaving. You shouldn't be leaving. Who are you going home to? You know, I'm going home to my wife. She drank. Yeah, she drinks. You can't go home to a drink. I'm like, don't worry about it. You don't know us. That was my mindset, you know? So I'm still this ignorant, you know, problematic drinker, so to say, in that moment. And I go home and, you know, I, I guess I white knuckled there for a little while, but I also had a strong network behind me of knowledge. I didn't have a lot of support in my corner at that point. I didn't really realize that, but I had the knowledge, which knowledge is power, right? If we use it correctly. So um, I get home and I manage 30 days. Now, I probably even set myself up on the way home because I kept saying, you know, forever, you know, I didn't want to worry about forever. I wasn't so much on a one day at a time thing because I didn't spend a lot of time in AA or I didn't really hear that verbiage a lot, but I just knew I could do it. Like something clicked in me along those lines where I knew I wasn't this guy. You know what I'm saying? I'm not the lay in bed till 11. My daughter walks in. She's going to be, dude, what's going on? You know, why are you still in bed? That's not me. You know what I'm saying? My life wasn't meant to be this, you know what I'm saying? Right. Like this big of a, in my own eyes, a failure, you know? So I'm on my way back home. I get home and I go right back to the grind, right to work. My wife's birthday is, you know, I came home, I think the day before her birthday, which is one of the reasons why I went to come home too, which is ridiculous in its own self, you know, because that shouldn't even matter in that moment. But so she goes out with her friends for her birthday and I'm just like kids. That's all I care about. I'm refocusing on my kids because luckily my kid, our relationship with my kids never really suffered. And I thought, you know, because they said there's always going to be a price to your drinking, especially when you take it as far as I did. If you would have asked me what that price was going to be, I would have told you my business. I would have told you I was going to lose my business, my relationship, my kids are going to flourish and me and my wife would be stronger than ever. It didn't quite play out that way. I doubled down on my kids. Me and my wife put the work in very shortly in the beginning. We started doing therapy and the wheels fell off pretty quickly. And in a way I couldn't control. I mean, if I had it to do all over again, I mean, there's probably some things I do differently. Um, but at the end of the day of that, I can't say anything other than I did what I had to do because it, there was no other option for me, for my kids and my health. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that I would have probably not died yet, but I was on my way. I mean, I would, when I checked in, I was one, my whole detox, I was probably like 180 over a hundred. The months leading up to going into the detox, I was disoriented often. I couldn't even look some of my clients in the eye on a regular mm -hmm. basis because I was so unsure of myself physically. And just emotionally, I mean, I was really just kind of falling apart, you know, to where I was just trying to 
<laughs> take that next foot step forward. Yeah. You know, um, and there is this tipping point. Uh, I'm also high functioning like you are. And there definitely is this tipping point of, you know, we are getting away with it. We are kind of having our cake and eating it too. And nothing is really being affected by it. But then there's this moment where the progression does catch up and it sounds like that's where you were at. And it's just, it's, it, it, we start kind of entering that territory of, unmanageability. And, and that really, I mean, being there really makes it really feel like a problem at, at the time, you know, and, you know, I'm just, it's crazy, the stuff that you were dealing with just physically and, and having to still work and be a dad and all of the things. And also it's as simple as what you shared, you know, alcohol was preventing you from being your best self it's complicated mm -hmm. and that simple at the same time yeah most definitely yeah that's 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 crazy and you know tell me more about what happened once you were starting to stack days and kind of live on this side of the journey what what started to happen and how did that develop into your life and your relationships overall all right so while my way home like i said i kind of set myself up for that first relapse so mm -hmm. And I remember, I think I heard you say something because I know me, you, Chris, I guess, share something in common in, in, in um, terms of the, the relationship dynamic of our drinking and having partners who drank or didn't drink or how, doing damage to our relationship with alcohol. I think I remember you saying once that you relapsed for all the right reasons. Am I correct? Is that something that came out of your mouth? Yes, correct. Yeah. So basically, that my first my first relapse was for all the right reasons. It was for... Me and my wife didn't know how to do anything that really didn't involve drinking. So for me to try to, I guess, feel what we were, you know, my idea was, you know, 30 days in and we're going to go on a date. What do we do on a date? We go to a restaurant, we drink. So that's what we did. And it was a non-event. You know, I mean, if, if I could have probably used that event to kid myself into thinking I could return to drinking. However, luckily, I set myself up for that moment, telling myself that even if I went back to a drink or drinking, I would just quickly get back on track. So that first relapse happened. And, you know, um, we had a nice night. Honestly, it was kind of one of our last probably good moments together. I don't know if she feels the same, obviously, after all we've been through at this point. But um you know, we had that night, we drank, and then I quickly got back on it. Now, at this point in time, she's drinking only, I, th I thought at the time, only when she was going out. Um, I expected her. I never gave her an ultimatum in the beginning. I never said, like, oh, listen, you got to stop drinking. You got to be on this path. I just naturally thought she'd follow me. You know, I really did. I was naive in that. From what I could tell, nothing was really out of control. I expected her to stay out a little bit longer. Um, she never really went out that much. And when she did, she didn't go out that long. But I just, you know, I knew that what I would do, my wife came home and said, she's not drinking anymore. I'd probably stay out for an extra drink with my friends. You know what I'm saying? That's what, that's how my mindset, I was trying to be fair and, and honest with the situation. We did therapy for a little bit and we just started disconnecting more and more. So I had that first relapse. Then I have a second one, probably like three weeks after that first 30 day, which was more out of anger. We were, me and her were fighting and I had like a fuck it moment, excuse my language. But I just, you know, I was like, you know, this is what you want from me. This is, you know, what everybody wants. I'm screwed. I'm just going to go back to what I was. And, you know, <laughs> lo and behold, nobody wanted that. I don't think, but I did it anyway. And then uh, once again, a one day thing got right back on track. And then our last small vacation together was the September 
uh, right in the middle of the pandemic. So that's pretty much the, my last drink. So we go to Cape May, New Jersey, a nice little short town with the girls. And I set it all up because I'm trying to rekindle this marriage. I'm trying to get us back on track. I'm trying to show this family what we could be again. And um, so I set up this nice vacation. And, you know, I, the whole time down there, she's like, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to drink. You know, she wasn't pressuring me, but, you know, I expected it out of myself. I didn't know no other way we could enjoy a three day vacation as a family without us doing this because what we always did, you know. So I'm kidding myself thinking, OK, maybe I'll drink the first night of Friday. I'll take off Saturday and maybe I'll drink again Sunday. And we'll come on Monday and I'll re- reset, regroup, you know. And we get down there Friday night and I, oh, dad, I probably didn't even have to drink. I really didn't even feel cravings other than going down the same path that we always went down. I mean, physically, I don't really think I felt the craving, but I wanted to have a good time with my wife at the time. And, you know, my kids were no worse for it. So we did what we always did, went to a nice restaurant and we started to drink. That Friday turned into the whole weekend thing leading up to me and my wife bickering almost because I think I resented her in that moment. Yes. I didn't really realize it because I wasn't getting the support that I probably thought I should have got. I don't even know what I was thinking, to be honest with you. But if I have to, you know, psychologically break it down, it's probably part of the reason. And uh, I just remember driving back and just having those withdrawals again. Cause now here I is, I tied it on for three, three days straight, you know, that 24 hour window, maybe I could have got away with, but that, you know, you're going to go back into those habits. You're going to start feeling, cause I was in the end of my drinking, drinking physically, I was getting there, you know what I'm saying? I think part of it was mental, but physically I was getting the shake sometimes and stuff like that. My blood pressure, the sweats, and I sure as hell didn't want to go through that again. So I remember going back home. I'm like, you know what? This is it. I can't do this no more. I didn't enjoy. And that's another thing too with that going back. I really went through a period where I hated it. I hated every drink I took, you know, and that was the beauty of the rewiring, you know? So I set myself up cognitively to, to really not enjoy it anymore. I remember I would have a first drink of white wine and I would ha- I get the chills. Cause I could almost feel, I could taste that poison going into my body. And, you know, now looking back, it's beautiful. It's, it's amazing. Like, it's like, wow, it worked. You know, Andy Grace, you're a freaking genius. Paul, you know, you're a genius. This gentleman, Craig Beck, thank you. You know, all these people that set up, set the path for you, you know, thank you. You know, it's, it's, it's just amazing what, it, what you could accomplish when you really put the work in, but coming home that Monday, I'm like, I'm done. And I just knew I was done. And then that's when the relationship really went south. And, you know, like I said, I doubled down on my kids. My relationships are never better. Um, I'm out of my house. We sold our house. It's almost uh, out of the house a year. Sold the house this past September. We're actively um, seeking a divorce. And, you know, it just is what it is. We're we're co-parenting well. Um, My wife's, uh, my soon-to-be ex-wife is still drinking. I pray for her, you know, to be honest with you. I don't really hold a lot of hate in my heart. Like I said, I probably hold a little bit more responsibility than I probably should have. So says my therapist, you know, but it's tough. It's tough all the way around. You know, it really is. No, I mean, it. it's a lot. And you're so brave, Stephen, because you, you know, you had a very well established life and learning to you know, listen to your gut feeling, even like you said, it it took some time, it took multiple resources, it took going back to drinking and not, but still landing at this place where you're, (laughs) you're standing up for yourself and you're being an advocate for yourself. And that takes a lot of courage to kind of be willing to destroy in order to rebuild. Like, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I hope you feel super proud of yourself. I do. I do. And you know, the way I look at it is like this, okay? Me, the, you know, we were 
perfectly happy. And I don't even know if that exists in a family or in a marriage. You know, there's no such thing in my personal opinion. Um, you know, the happiness is in the moments, you know, the, the success is in those little moments where things are good. And when they're not, you work back towards good. And it wasn't all bad. I mean, if you, if you were to talk to my ex-wife right now, she'd make it sound like it was, it was a horror show. And it wasn't. We had a lot of good times. I mean, I think that, you know, people talk about the addicted mind lying to you in your own voice. I think there's a lot of that going on. It was a lot in my journey. And I think there's some in my ex's journey now with that. That being said, I, we weren't heading to work good, you know, as a family, as a couple, we weren't working together. We weren't growing together. We weren't investing in a relationship and alcohol was stealing all of that from us. Whether or not we both see that or it's just my reality. Well, it's my reality. I mean, and that's all I could do is, you know, make moves off of my reality. And my kids mean the world to me. And I remember being around my dad. My dad first started having health problems when I was five. So I grew up in an, an um a whirlwind of an environment as a kid. That's why I never probably felt settled enough to enjoy my own skin. Cue alcohol once again, you know? So I never want that for my kids. And you know, I started thinking when I was sick all the time, like, I don't want these kids in a hospital like I was when I was a kid looking over my father. You know what I'm saying? I was like, I want to be there when I can give a shit if they get married now, you know, because it's the marriage thing to me, it's a piece of paper, you know, relationships are relationship with another human being, period, woman or whatever it is. You know, the values in a relationship is not in that piece of paper. So, but if they choose to get married, I want to be there to welcome down. Aisle. I want to be there to bring them to college. You know, I want to enjoy this moment right now that I have coaching them. I coach them both on multiple sports. I love it with them, the kids. I wasn't going to have that if I stayed on that course and we weren't going to have much of a relationship. So to me, it was kind of a no brainer. And now to go further down the road, I still am very hopeful for her. You know, like I still very either she's going to settle into a functional moderating drinker. She has that shot. I never would have. I don't really believe in that, but she has that shot. What am, who am I to say? Maybe one day down the road, me and her will be doing a podcast with you together. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Like that's, the I'd sign up that, for that all day. You know? Yeah. The fact that you can um, just honor and accept where she's at. I, like you said, it, it it's tricky. I'm, I'm sure it's you. Ha there's this moments where it's hard, but that's really important, you know, the fact that you can just know that whatever the outcome is for her, it, it's going to be on her own timeline. And also, you know, having yeah. that strength back to that of understanding that her outcome doesn't have to be your outcome. You know, I, I my husband and I have a very similar relationship to what you shared previously of like just being best friends and drinking buddies. And it's it's really hard to kind of reclaim your independence from that. Like you said that last weekend, you didn't even want to drink. You just kind of like there's this habituation and all this time together. And I don't know, I feel like separating yourself from that enmeshment is it sounds like you're, you know, you, there's a lot of awareness behind it and a lot of healthy thinking behind it of, you know, you wish the best for her and whatever happens, it, it's her own timeline. Yeah, I mean, and to, to go even further, like this, this one, uh, the first program I did, Craig Beck, I remember I'm like 75% through it, which is, it's, it's intensive, it's short in terms of um, the length of the, the program. And I remember him talking about um, the journey out of alcohol, he puts it, he does a small podcast on it. And this kind of like raised my eyebrow, but he said like, you know, talking about drinking around others, you know, how if you're, you know, you're married or you're with people that drink. It makes it even harder to, to remove yourself from it or get out of that predicament. And he said the, the journey out of alcohol 
uh, you could you know replace that with addiction. The journey out of alcohol is a tightrope. Someone can walk in front of you or behind you, but they can't walk aside you. Mm. And I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, shit, nah, you know, like I was just thinking like, this is not going to be us. You know what I'm saying? We'll be fine. And uh, sure shit, it is a tightrope. And, you know, people, you can't force them to hold your hand and you can't force them to see things the way you do. And you know what? I even worked it down to my therapist. Like, you know what? Me and my wife uh, got together back when we were young. It's almost like, I don't know if we would have stuck if it wasn't for the alcohol. Right. You know what I'm saying? I think that might've been one of those glues that brought us together. Now we both were into each other. We both appreciated each other, um, loved each other, you know, but that, I think that was that glue. Cause there was a lot of differences that we overlooked when we were young. They seemed like there were minor things, but those minor things grow into bigger things, yes. especially if you don't address them. And I think maybe that's where, when the smoke finally cleared, cause you know, alcohol will cover your eyes very well for a long time. So I think maybe when that smoke cleared, it kind of left us in a, in a place where I don't think either one of us were ready for. Yeah, you know, and you know? we do tend to engage or link up with people that are kind of on the same wavelength as us. You know, I remember going into therapy too a while back when I was early into marriage and, and you know, you go in there and I, I thought that my therapist would be on my side about all these complaints that I had about my husband. And she was like, you realize you kind of do the same thing. Like, it's just such a mirror thing. And then until one person, you know, grows, but, but it's, it's crazy how we do end up, like you said, you know, maybe that was one of the reasons that you guys attracted to each other. And it's just really interesting to me how, we do connect with people in that sense. And, you know, it's it's just life. It's it's crazy. It's such a journey. And we are running a little bit out of time, Stephen. So tell me just a little bit about, you know, your sobriety. How has this time been? And what have been, you know, maybe like something that has surprised you about sobriety? How easy it could be? It surprised me, I guess. Nice. I, know, I, I shouldn't probably say that because I don't want to mislead anybody out there and think that it should be easier than it is. But as hard as much shit as I've been through, you know, once it gets good, it gets great quick, you know, and, and, the, and the, the positive just moves forward so flawlessly. Once you start putting in the work and living the right way and doing the right things, it just compounds, you know, and um, so that's kind of a surprise. You know, I've, I, I ain't going to say like the confidence or any of that because, you know, I was broken in the end to where I didn't have a lot of confidence. And now that it's coming back, I love it. I love walking with a swagger again. I love being able to have a conversation with whomever, whenever, wherever. You know, I told my therapist, I was like, I can have a conversation with Jesus today, you know, just bumping into him on the street. You know what I'm saying? And at one point, I couldn't even look someone in the eye, you know, and that sucked. So it's just once you get it going in the right direction, you know, just keep moving forward. Like, and that's a bit of advice I just want to give anybody too. like, just, you know, I meditate, I journal, fitness has always been a part of my life, even in during the shit show. And I put everything into my kids. And, you know, we talk about accountability partners. I was one of these people who made the tricky proposition of making my children, especially my 13 year old, my accountability partner. And like I said, it's a tricky proposition because if you don't pull it off, you know, <laughs> it's going to backfire on you big time. But what better person than the person you love most to hold you accountable? You know, in my personal opinion, it worked out well for me to this point in the journey. I but love yeah, that. I mean, I That's so sweet. I love that. I, I love that she's able to be that support for you. And, and really, yeah, sometimes we do need that accountability that 
that weighs, you know, that weighs a lot and someone like that and a love like the one you have for her, that's a big weight. You know, accountability, yeah. I feel like has different weight levels. If it's like a stranger or someone you just met on the internet, it's very different than someone who you know can really be and, affected by it. And if I can add one, one, like two quick things real quick, and you can sound bite it however you want if you and through this process. But um, my 13 year old, okay, she's very special, very special relationship. But both my daughters, my 13 year old, she's my first, you know, and two times in this journey where she really came to bat for me. And um, the first was one of those aha moments later on in the process, but we're in a pandemic and me and my wife are in one of these bickering moments. And we, unfortunately, we kind of lived our our world out in the open in our household. And um, so our kids are on the couch, we're on the couch, we're bickering. And my 13 year old, she's 11 at the time, she turns to us and she's like, shut up, will you stop? Both, you know, to both me and my wife at the time, she's like, will you stop arguing? She's like, what are you gonna let wine ruin your marriage? And I remember just being frozen in that moment thinking like, oh my God, like this kid could see it and we can't, you know? So that's number one. And number two, that last vacation in Cape, so now my, my little ones know I'm not drinking no more, that they don't know the extent of it. They never liked us drinking, especially as they gotten older, they started to see the problem with it, you know, so they would show signs of not being happy with us drinking. And uh, we'd always give them, you know, it's, it's adult business and yada, yada, all that bullshit we tell our kids. And so I'm into that third day of that drinking in Cape May and um, we're at the poolside. It's me and my, my wife at the time, my two daughters. And my 13 year old comes up to me and she goes, why are you drinking? And I go, it's a vacation, baby. You know, I was, I was like, daddy could have a couple of drinks around the pool. She was like, this ain't going to continue when we go back home, is it? And I go, <laughs> I look at it and I chuckle. I go, no, baby, it won't. I promise. She goes, good. And she jumps in the pool. And I was thinking like, this kid is, you know, awesome, dude. Because I just, I got someone on my side. You know, I got someone that sees the value of what I'm trying to do here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's crazy. Multiple times she's done that for me, like where she's come up and she's like, doesn't it feel good to be sober? Like at a family party in the beginning when I was struggling, like, you know, she'd sit with me. I'd be sitting with the kids because, you know, the adults are over there drinking. So I'm spending time with the kids. And she'd be like, look, look at all them. She's like, look at yourself. Like My 13 year old is telling me this. Oh, you know, crazy, I love right? this. She yeah. sounds like she's an old soul. I like her already. Yeah, she is. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you, Stephen, for sharing. And let's do a couple a couple of questions for the rapid fire before we say goodbye. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabulous. Are you ready? Let's go. Yep. Okay. What would you say to your younger self? It's going to hurt. That's it. It's going to hurt. I heard that from Mike Tyson one time and it made a lot of sense to me. It's my, kind of my personality. Get ready. It's going to hurt. Yeah. Because that's, that's the way I do things. You know, I make it hurt usually. I hear that. What is your go-to answer, especially now that uh, we are socializing again and you're someone who got sober in COVID? So what is your go-to answer if you're at a party with new people and you get offered a drink? That's a tricky one for me. I'm not going to dance around anybody's feelings. Um, I, you know, I'll say no, thank you. I'll tell you to go <laughs> to shove it. You know, it doesn't really, it depends on the person in the situation. I have no problem with saying nothing about my sobriety and I have every ability to tell you all of it you nice. know it all depends on the person in the situation i i hold no punches what's your favorite ice cream flavor whatever my daughters want that day <laughs> what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze this is a tough one i mean just l live the information like get out there too because it wasn't until i got to the third fourth source of hearing it 
that it really started to click. So Quitlet is phenomenal. We are part of a, a phenomenal movement. And I don't know if the people in our world realize how lucky they are to have it and just live it. Because if you live it, it won't be denied. That's the best, I guess, advice I could give. No matter how lost you feel right now, keep going forward, keep living it, keep acquiring the knowledge, and it will happen. I never would have thought it would happen for me. It will happen. I love this advice. It won't be denied if you live it. So, so mm-hmm. true. And before we depart, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if flying. All right, I got two. I'll give you two. I got probably 20, but I'll give you two. <laughs> All right, you may have to say adios to booze if you spend hours for the course of months driving around in your car, listening to audios while you pull into ShopRite Liquors crying to go get your daily fix. That's number one. Number two is it may be time to say adios to alcohol if you waste an amazing opportunity to be in a great marriage with someone you love and you have to walk away from that. It's time to say goodbye to alcohol because it did it. Oh, Stephen, thank you so much for sharing. You know, I know more good things are coming for you and you shared with such strength and vulnerability today. I really appreciate you. I'm really happy that we got to do this. We're here for you and we'll talk soon. All right, Ode. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Very well, Team Ari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to share a quote that I read and really liked. It's very simple. It says, if you're seeking anything outside of self, you're taking the long way home. You know, this journey is never perfect and obstacles show up and lessons present themselves for us to either take or circle around and then come and pick up later. What I want to say is just remember that everything that you are looking for, you know, all of that strength and certainty, all of that, you already have it inside of you. And it's also okay if you doubt yourself. It's also okay if you wonder if you even have the answers. You know, there is no shame in feeling doubtful or in not believing in yourself sometimes. And maybe that just means that you're going to be taking a little bit of a longer road into where you're headed, but we'll still get there. Whether we're ready to take the shortcut because we finally look within and realize that we have the answers inside ourselves or whether we keep looking outside and taking baby steps amongst all of this chaos of information and opinions and questions. You know, whatever path you take, you're still on the path. So just wanted to share that clearly, that simple quote and that simple sentence brought up a lot for me. Um, And I just wanted to share, I'm going to say it again. If you're seeking anything outside of self, you're taking the long way home. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, give yourself a big pat on the back right now and remember that you're here and that you're trying. I love you guys. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. 